let me ask you a question, for example. How on earth would you like these foreigners to engage in uh, gambling in, in, in your country? Two, how on earth would you like these people to engage in gambling in your country without due diligence, without anybody filing a background information, knowing as we all do, that this is business that is always prone to uh, the temptations for money laundering, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth, and sometimes trying to wash proceeds of crime. And, and, and that's why I told these foreigners when I was deporting them that you, are doing, you want to do things in our country, you will not do it in your own countries. That is Kenya's Interior Cabinet Secretary, Dr. Fred Matiangi. He explains the exact problem with the gambling market in Kenya. In this episode, I will explore the broken gambling market in Kenya. Just why it is easy to get away with almost anything in this sector. Welcome to a country of gamblers. My name is Paul Wafula. By 2018, Sportpesa was raking in billions of shillings. In just four years, the startup had figured out the Kenyan market. By this time, other betting companies were mushrooming all over Kenya, playing catch-up. There was money to be made. The market was open, too liberal without restrictions, legal or otherwise. The Bulgarians were at the center of it all. They became extremely wealthy, and there were celebrities in some social circles. They were the Mr. Moneybags, and they attracted so much attention with everything they did. I think the interior minister saw Gero as a threat. The kind of money which Gero was getting was a lot of money. It was even overwhelming him. So they saw this guy as a threat because he was taking money outside. So they reacted to tame Gero. But in their reaction, they've killed the industry. That is Deep Throat, our anonymous and inside man in the betting world. You will remember him from the earlier episodes. Let me paint a picture of why gambling worked in Kenya. The beginning and the end of that long story is political connections that blurred legal lines. You see, authorities who are supposed to oversee the critical betting industry in the country were kind of in it. Betting board is part of the problem because if you ask me, right now the Minister of Interior brought in somebody who has never been in the betting industry and sacked all those people who knew what gambling is. And these are the people who the government had invested a lot of money in training. They had taken these people to Las Vegas in America to go and train about gambling. Now what we have, these people don't know anything. They're just using the act. They know nothing, if you, if you ask me. They're just there. If you can write anything, you take there, you tell them I want a license, they'll give you the license.
the power and money that Jero had and was so freely exercising started to bite him. Yeah, and then um, there was suspicion that uh, maybe he was involved in money laundering, which I don't think he was. All bets were off for Spotpesa at this point. The authorities had trained their eyes on the betting company. There were suspicions of the company flighting out billions of Kenya shillings. The accusation is not that the company was illegal in Kenya, not at all. It was just that somehow the authorities had woken up and were smelling the coffee. At this point, I'm wondering, how was this company structured such that it makes so much money so easily? And the decisions seemed to be made by a few individuals at best and at worst by one individual. Wasn't the Spotpesa board aware of these allegations? Yeah, it uh, concerned the board a lot. And as I was telling you, those were the sunset years of Spotpesa because um, that was about two or three, four, about four months before the suspension of licenses, of the license. That time the board, the non-executive directors had started also raising issues and concerns on money laundering and money being sent to unknown offshore accounts. So, Paul Ndungu, who was part of the Spotpesa phenomena, seems to suggest some impropriety on the side of Jero. Remember, this is his fellow shareholder in the company and a board member. A few things first. I have tried unsuccessfully to secure Gero's side of the story. He has refused countless times to respond to my invitation. Had he accepted my interview requests, we would have cleared up these accusations against him. Money laundering, to be exact. Anyway, Things weren't exactly working well for Spotpesa, and at this point, the international pressure, starting with the House of Commons in the UK, gathered pace. Sport Pisa, who sponsor Everton, and Fun 88, who sponsor Newcastle, gave only £50 each last year. Both are white labels of the company TGP Europe. Best Bets gave £5. GFM Holdings Limited gave just £1. When we have 430,000 gambling addicts, 55,000 of whom are children, that is completely unacceptable and deliberately insulting to those leading players in the industry who are trying to take responsibility. Mr Speaker, after today... We will still have inadequate regulation and a gambling act that is outdated and not fit for the digital age. We have gambling companies licensed in the UK, sponsoring UK football teams, yet operating entirely abroad, behaving irresponsibly and fueling addiction in countries like Kenya. We have companies allowing customers to lose tens of thousands of pounds on multiple credit cards in a single sitting. We have companies who, after a customer tries to self-exclude, bombards them with advertising emails and offers of free bets, then makes them sign NDAs when they settle. The gambling market is broken, and it's up to the government to fix it. 
We don't just need a voluntary patch. We need a full overhaul of the rules and regulations. A full overhaul of rules and regulations. Sportpesa became the poster child of gambling in Kenya and internationally the broken gambling system. Not paying taxes and fueling addiction became the two sticking points that to date has dogged the former betting giant. If you have been following this podcast about a country of gamblers, you will know that we have investigated in depth the question of fueling addictions. There is still one point to investigate, the movement of money by betting companies. Just who takes home the huge monies that betting companies make? I have agonized over this question for a long time because the answer to this most of the time is conjecture. That is to mean there's very little information for us to arrive at a definite answer. Still, I must ask this question. I devised a plan to ask one question to the two board members of Sportpesa. If we ask a simple question of how much money was a company worth and how much it was making, surely we can ask a follow-up question and resolve our mystery. Who takes the money home? So here goes an experiment. What do you say is the value of the professor part mm. being sold at $14.7 Since inception, Pavans, East Africa Limited, or Sports Pesa, up to the suspension of license, had used over $36 billion in expenses to promote the brand directly through sponsorships and um, and branding and marketing, the company had used over 26 billion. That is the value of the brand Sportpesa because a brand is built through expenses and marketing, advertising and sponsorships. The company had used over 26 billion and in total, over 36 billion in expenses in order to promote the brand. So, Pondungu puts the value of the company to something like 36 billion Kenya shillings. That is a good start. Plus, he also explains where the value is coming from and how much money the company actually put in. This is good, really good, because no one until now knew the true value of this betting giant. Now, the same question to the CEO of Sportpesa. Sportpesa at its peak, I would say, uh, I think it was in excess of uh, probably 50 billion shillings. I am a little taken aback. It is not possible to have such a huge difference in the valuation of a blue chip company by board members. 14 billion shillings is a huge sum of money. You can't just ignore 14 billion. 
it is either the two are not running this company at all, and so they know nothing of the books, or that profit-shifting accusation by authorities in both England and Kenya is actually a thing. This is Nikhil Hira, a tax expert and a director at Bowman's Kenya. So profit-shifting, the, the, the reason one does it, is to take advantage of lower tax rates somewhere else. So Kenya has a rate of 30% for its corporate tax. Some other country might have 15%. Uh, so what people do, and again, this could be evasion, it could also be avoidance, but it could be good tax planning as well. Um, you, you are shifting the profits from a high tax jurisdiction to a lower tax jurisdiction. And so you're, you're shifting your profits, and therefore, the jurisdiction in which you're operating, Kenya, is losing out. And the tax haven that you've used is gaining, but you're not really doing anything there, in a sense. Um, so it is the whole concept of profit shifting and, and transfer pricing is that we're saying, if I'm doing a transaction with you and you're an independent party, I would charge you 100 shillings. If I'm doing it with my related party in, in a tax haven somewhere, I might charge them 90 shillings. So why am I doing that? Because I'm getting that additional 10 shillings, you know, or sorry, I might charge them 110 shillings. And, and you know, I'm shifting 10 shillings offshore, which I would have otherwise taxed here. So that's the whole concept of profit shifting in a nutshell. It's a lot more complex than that, but in a nutshell, that's what it is. This is really corporate talk on what some will call creative accounting. Don't worry if you don't entirely get this. The basic point here is start so many other companies in other jurisdictions and shift not just the costs, but services as well. Here is how Ronald Karauri describes Spotpesa's operations as an answer to the question of profit shifting and that the company simply didn't move money away from Kenya to avoid paying taxes here. That, that's, so, how, that's how it would seem. Yeah. But you see, the, the, what creates that impression is the fact that you have built the capacity to provide the service to yourself. Remember, even SPS, if they were required, they can provide the service to any other company. If you have a betting license in Kenya, for example, and if you approach me, I can link you up to our people in the UK and they can actually give you betting software. They will give you whatever name you want. For example, you want uh, Polbet. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want Polbet written, they will create the software for you. You'll have the full betting platform. Then you pay the revenue share fees. Remember, it's a company that is also supposed to uh, create revenue for themselves. Yeah. The, fa the problem is, at the time when you're expanding, you don't look for third parties for business because you're expanding. So you're just trying to provide the service to your own companies to ensure that there's not a shortage. Otherwise, you'd have to increase capacity to another level so that you can provide for third parties. But it's a company that can provide software to any other company, even right now. I have to be clear with you, though. Profit shifting and tax havens are not necessarily illegal. A lot of what happens here is usually a subject of authorities and governments moving in, checking transactions after transactions. The devil is in the detail here. It's more of a moral argument than an entirely legal one. And it is purely 
authorities' diligence, following up, and making sure your tax claim is agreeable to them. Here is Nikhil again. The KRA might come along and say, but hold on. What you are paying is X, but what you should be paying is X minus 10. And there are various softwares and benchmarking tools we use to determine uh, what sort of range you should be charging for these sort of services. It, it extends to other things. I mean, brand. I, I develop a brand in Kenya and I'm using it in Uganda. The Kenya Revenue Authority could come along and say to me, but you, know, you incurred all the cost here in Kenya to, to develop that brand. You took it to Uganda where you invested using the same brand name, but Uganda is not paying you for it. The cost was incurred here. Uh, it could be I'm using a global software that my group has, uh, and, 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 and the, the, the group company is recharging me, recharging the, the company in Kenya for that software. What is a reasonable amount for them to recharge? Because, of course, it's a cost that I can deduct here. So the whole idea of profit-sharing, transfer pricing, is to make sure that the correct tax is being paid in the correct jurisdiction. And, and, and that's where it comes from. The use of tax havens has traditionally in the past, certainly all those years ago when I started uh, in my tax career, we used to use tax havens for a lot of things. As time has gone on and people are looking more and saying, well, look, corporations need to pay their fair share. Uh, if they are based in Nairobi, they need to pay towards being based in Nairobi in a sense. Uh, so there is this moral argument that is now coming up, apart from the legal argument, that am I morally right by shifting all my profits offshore? And we're going to see changes in this as we go along. We've already seen it. We've seen a, you know, tax havens never used to tell you anything. And you've seen how much information is now circulating around. Uh, Kenya has signed many tax exchange information agreements with other countries uh, where if, if, if somebody has got, you know, a a dispute with, with the UK Inland Revenue or Magistrates Revenue and Customs, and they know that there is a, a Kenyan connection, they might tell the Kenya Revenue Authority because there is an exchange of information there. So, profit shifting is not money laundering, just to be clear. Though, there are allegations leveled upon the Bulgarians on the same. Okay, thank you for the invite. My name is Tony Otima and I'm an economist by profession. Uh, an economist, basically, you're a researcher, you're an analyst. Uh, so you try to break down numbers, uh, figures, and information with the lens of an economist, basically looking at demand and supply, looking at opportunity costs. But basically, an economist is a researcher and an analyst, uh, in short. Money laundering basically is uh, uh, ill-gotten wealth, uh, trying to get into the system of a country, legally. And so it's basically, as the word says, you're laundering money. It's, uh, you're trying to clean up money. So it's money out of the system of operations where the money is provided by managers, provided by central bank, uh, because central bank has the data and figures. So you find that money is acquired illegally whether it's drug money, whether it's uh, money from piracy, whether it's money from such illegal activities, you find uh, companies uh, 
which are legally registered uh, or people who are owning uh, bank accounts, money coming through the system through them. So probably they will portray a picture, they're doing such kind of business and then make a payment from that illegal wealth into the system. Uh, and so when it enters the system, it creates an imbalance. It's not uh, money that CBK is in charge of uh, because CBK is always in charge of operations of uh, uh, money supply. Uh, so you find that in a case where there's a lot of money laundering, there's a high case of uh, money supply. And a uh, high case of money supply, which CBK in terms is not in control of that money supply, because they might try to move money out of the circulation, but you find there's still a lot of money within the economy. Uh, so it creates some very big disturbance and price changes, uh, because you find that money will come, and whether people will buy real estate, will buy such kind of things, eh? and, and the cost of those real estate and such projects go up. Because these are, this is money that they have not done anything with it, but they just want to clean the system. So you find a lot of money end, end up in real estate places. Uh, if you look at many countries where money laundering is prevalent. The business environment that SportPesa created invited more speculation than public trust. There was just too much shrouded in mystery than was necessary. After reviewing documents and doing dozens of interviews, it was clear that this was by design, of course, the complex paperwork and multiple companies that were created achieved the purpose. Money was moved. So, so, so there, there are quite a number of things to look at. Uh, you find that uh, they are betting income. So their total income on what uh, they received from people who were betting. Uh, I, I think uh, the figure is one, 149 billion. Uh, that figure is quite big because that's why we call the gross gaming revenue. And so when they pay out, they pay out 129 billion. And so they remain with 20 billion only as their guest gaming revenue. So what they, they, they report as their revenue. Uh, okay, that figure is quite interesting because that's a very huge figure uh, looking at uh, the magnitude of that number, uh, receiving 149 billion from bets in Kenya. Uh, that figure is almost what T taxes, T, 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 T bonuses are received by farmers in the whole country. Uh, and the effect of that is that um, uh, in the economy, especially when they pay T bonuses, you will see there is a difference in the economy in terms of liquidity. Uh, for Spotspesa to have such uh, kind of money coming in, I, I think that is huge because uh, it's almost almost uh, more than a third of what uh, salaries and the remuneration of uh, of teacher service commission. And so to explain the magnitude, that's the magnitude of what we are talking about, almost 150 billion. Uh, that's interesting because also you look at uh, uh, Kenya National Bureau of Statistics numbers, uh, you don't see that kind of activity captured, which is huge. If you're talking about 150 billion activity from betting alone from one company, uh, I'm sure the Bureau of Statistics should have at any data point, should have captured something like that. Uh, but uh, because 
if one company can do that, we are talking about the total betting industry, mobile betting only alone, should be around 200 billion more. Uh, that is uh, that is a figure that uh, an activity that Kenya National Bureau of Statistics cannot miss it. Uh, the third issue is that uh, numbers from the recent study by CBK and FSD uh, say that uh, the total bettors is estimated in a survey at around 800 million people who use mobile phones. Uh, 800,000, sorry. 800,000. Uh, and because that figure makes sense because these are mobile betting people. They are paid back through their mobile uh mobile bank accounts. Uh, so that's the figure, almost 99% of people who will be betting on mobile will have the same kind of uh, accounts. So we've talked about 800 in total, uh, and you put that figure of 150 billion for one company only uh, receiving that, those kind of revenues, uh, it creates a, 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 an information problem uh, because uh, the, the numbers don't add up. Uh, there is something missing in terms of how do you cancel out those numbers. Num amount is huge, but where are the betting company, where are the betting numbers coming from? So that's one of the most interesting things. But apart from that, you notice that um, uh, as revenue increases, uh, you find uh, also expenses increases. Uh, uh, and that's most interesting when you scroll down more and find uh, the, the, the expenses. One of the min most interesting thing is the staff cost. Uh, within six months, uh, the staff cost has doubled. Uh, and that makes a very interesting claim. Uh, because basically how a mobile uh, betting company operates, uh, the biggest infrastructure is their software. Um, and so that software, uh, it's something that you do once. Uh, it's only maintenance that is required over a period of time. And so the most interesting thing to see is how uh, their staff cost moves by double within six months. Uh, I think that's one of the queries that needs to be looked at. Apart from that, you see legal services uh, also moved almost a double, legal and professional services. It's not only legal, but legal and professional. So other professional services are being provided. Uh, that's within six months also, you find that uh, uh, the figure had almost doubled, uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, and also the other one will be director's remuneration. Uh, that is one of other figures that almost doubled. It actually doubled. It's not almost, it actually doubled, more than doubled, uh, which makes a very interesting thing to look at. Uh, you know, the, 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 the most, when you, especially if you're a regulator, one of the key things that you need to look at is that, um, especially people like Kerry, is that uh, why people do uh, or, or try to inflate expenses is that you're moving a lot of money from your books so that your profit shrinks and you're paying less, uh, uh, less taxes. So I'm not saying this is exactly what happened here, but that's the case that almost happens, uh, that uh, you have companies try to inflate expenses uh, so to move quite a number of money outside the books so that when you're coming to the profits, net profit that you're supposed to, gross profit that you're supposed to pay uh, taxes, you've shrunk quite a bit of it. And so you have more money in terms of liquidity, in terms of expenses. So they're not ideal expenses, but it's liquidity that you've moved for yourself. 
Uh, and so that's one of the key things that and accountants and auditors are always keen about. Yeah. Remember when I asked that question of the valuation of Sportpesa? I got two different answers to that question. A whooping 14 billion difference. I just want to demonstrate to you how much a billion shillings is and how you cannot mistake a billion, let alone 14 billion shillings. Uh, okay, let's, uh, okay, I'm trying to put the easiest way to say what's a billion. And the latest numbers after demonetization is we are, we are able to establish that uh, less than 1% of Kenyans have 1 billion in their account. Uh, people who have 1 billion in their account are people accountable in terms of individuals. So uh, that's a huge amount of money. If you're putting it in sacks, I think uh, uh, you will carry a lot of money uh, in terms of carrying 1 billion. 1 billion is a lot of money in terms of... Uh, uh, if you look at real estate uh, and how people value companies, uh, quite a number of buildings that people see in Nairobi, uh, even most of the top buildings, don't get even to 5 billion. It's around that 1.1 to 2 billion. Uh, so when you talk about 1 billion, uh, that's a huge amount of money that you're talking about. If you're talking about, you replicate it 150 times. Uh, if you're buying land in Nairobi, I think, and buildings, you might buy the a bigger part of the CBD, I think the whole of CBD with 150 billion. The owners of Sportpesa put together an elephant of a company. Some of them couldn't tell heads from tails of that animal. But in retrospect, that's the only way the company could have succeeded. The dark alleys of Kenyan laws and politics enabled this system to flourish until it was too late. As we speak, they don't see eye to eye. Paul Ndungu says he will never work with CEO Ronald Karauri, come what may. He levels claims of tax cheating and other fraudulent activities against him and the Bulgarians. Will they ever reconcile? No. No, with, uh, with what I've come to learn, uh, it would be very difficult. But my main concern is, uh, of course, uh, after Leonard Karauri and Francis Carey, after the authorities realized that uh, they have engaged in criminal activities, evading tax, uh, stealing from fellow shareholders, misrepresentation to BCLB after they were being sought by the authorities, they went to the same court to seek uh, uh, anticipatory bail not to be arrested. Yeah, which the same court, I had said, might have given the, the anticipatory bail for them not to be arrested. They went to court to sue or to get anticipatory board from the director of criminal investigation, from inspector general of police, uh, from uh, from BCLB, and from the de uh, from the director of public prosecution. So they have uh, 
they have gagged the, the investigative authorities of the Republic of Kenya using a court process. So they are operating under the law one, they are not operating under the auspices of the, the regulator. I feel that is the kind of person we had as chairman. And again, he's not someone you would ever want to work with, even if I'm speaking personally. Even if it's running a kiosk, I would never want to work with such a person because that's a sinking ship already. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> the rest of the team, I have no issues with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, yes, we had court orders because remember, at some point, it seemed like the only remedy we were getting was through the courts because initially when the uh, tax matter started withholding tax, uh, a matter that we actually won at the tribunal stage, we were getting agency notices every month. So by the time you go to Safaricom to open the pay bills, the only way you can open the pay bills is through a court order. So we kept getting court orders. So it looked like the professor was constantly in court. But remember, we were always on the back foot because our business was constantly getting stopped every single month. And our only remedy was through the court because remember, there was no dialogue. So I don't know if it's a matter of targeting. Um, I believe and I hope it was just a matter of misunderstandings that I know can be clarified. Remember you asked me about the global structure and the perceptions about uh, money and profit shifting. Remember, if we had to sit down, as I said, with KRA and sit on the same table and have a candid discussion, all the documents they need to view are there and we can actually close all these matters so that it's not a perception issue when it becomes uh, something based on facts. So I, I don't want to speculate on what was happening at the time, whether it was targeting or not, because I believe there was a concern about the levels of gambling in the country. I believe it could, could have been handled better, but I'm hoping now as we move forward, if we are in dialogue with the specific agencies of government, then there should be no problem. The Sport Pesa license has been stopped. The betting company has appealed the decision. The fortunes of the company are not the same. The company is not making hundreds of billions anymore. If anything, it is a shadow of its former self now. The Bulgarians were deported by the Ministry of Interior. They now live in Dubai and elsewhere. Uh, yes, I heard in the media also about the deportation, but that happened when they were not here anyway. So I don't know whether it still holds. I, I honestly am very unclear on those, yeah. Yeah, on those facts. But do you talk to them? I mean, I do partners. talk to them. How, how are know, they feeling he, about all this? Like, you know, it's, you know, he had a family here. He had a wife and two young kids who are Kenyans. So when he left, he said, look, I better just... Uh, I better just... Uh, condition my mind to live live in another country because I don't want to be somewhere where one day my kids are going to school then we all have to go so he said let me just set base in where where I am right now live my life here because I just need some stability I don't want to wake up tomorrow he said it's very disruptive you know so I have to leave everything I can't come back those kind of things so he just said let me just he's okay let me live where I am because he's doing other businesses now in fact he's not so concerned about Sport Pesa, for him he's doing some telco things wherever. <laughs>